<clears throat> after the sermon, not before. Okay, we have the call to worship. It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High, to show forth thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness every night. It's by our hearts and heads and silent preparation for worship. Let us stand and sing hymn 164, 164.
You may be seated. Let's do, let us do that. <clears throat> Gracious God, we ask for your spirit with us, Lord. We thank you for the protection of us in our travels as we've driven by some of us accidents and seen how bad the roads have become. So we pray tonight, Lord, that the roads would be at least a little safer, a little longer, so we can finish the praise and worship of your name, Lord, and return home safely. We ask in particular this evening, God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, blessed three and one, marvelous creator, God, and king of the universe, that you would be with your children of the covenant, you'd be with the youth and the adults, all of us, God, would continue to endeavor to learn and grow in our education, that is, our Christian education of the word of God, and to apply such truth into our lives, into the lives of each other, God, to encourage one another unto more faithfulness and understanding of your word. In particular, God, we ask that you'd be with our children, of the covenant. Our churches, our Presbyterian, Lord, and our Presbyterians, our denominations, the sister churches, Lord, and all Christian faiths, God, uh, that is here in Denver and across this nation, to be protected, Lord, their children, that they would have access to Christian education, proper education, Lord, not only of the Bible, uh, but of their <clears throat> one, two, threes, and their ABCs, and, and history and the like, God, from a proper Christian and moral perspective and understanding, Lord, that they'd be protected from bad schooling, bad environment, bad teachers and the like, God. And so we ask that you'd be with them and help those churches and families do what they can to educate their children, to give them the access to good education for their training, especially education, God, in the Word, in your Bible, Lord, wherein their faith may grow. We pray for our youth in particular as well, that you'd help them, God, find godly spouses to prepare themselves for a life of employment, especially the men, God, to have good work. Again, especially in this bad economy and in the worst places such as Denver and elsewhere, God, where it's hard to find a living wage job for given how much things cost now, and especially the housing, Lord, in the Denver metro area. Be with them, we pray. Help them with... Uh, this endeavor, Lord, to do the right thing and to find and get good employment, Lord, give them good contacts, God, give them perseverance and give them wisdom to do the right thing, Lord, uh, and to know exactly how to deal with the difficulties they may find themselves in. Protect them, Lord, from the temptations of this world and watch over them, we pray, God, that they uh, would carry on the Christian faith that they have learned from their parents and from their churches, Lord, and to teach it to their newfound families. We lift up God. Those who are in the military and other like services uh, for this nation and for our uh, municipalities and the counties we find ourselves in, and the cities, Lord, such as the police and the medical fields. We think of Simon and Tolly in particular, God, that you would protect and watch over them, that you would help Simon be able to get uh, stateside again quickly, Lord, off the boat. And watch over Tali in particular, God, that he would uh, persevere and do well at his job, Lord, and uh, be able to stay out of trouble, Lord, if uh, they have, we don't know what the Marines are like, if they're not very, perhaps, happy with Christians, Lord, or whatever it is that he may have to deal with, other kind of persecutions and the like, God, that you would give him wisdom, give him perseverance, give him protection, give both of them, Lord, godly chaplains, in the difficult situations they find themselves in, or a good church somewhere nearby, we pray. We ask, Lord, you be with those brothers and sisters who do work in other hard fields, such as the, the police and the medical fields, God, that you would protect them as well and be with them, that they'd be a witness to the world around them, our Lord and Savior. We pray and ask and implore your spirit, God, to be with us this week, that we would take one day at a time and that we would do our callings and vocations in life with a joyful heart, God, following you and having our faith strengthened as we read your word and pray 
by ourselves and with one another this week. Be with us, we pray, God, and watch over us as you promised in your word. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. praise you, God, and thank you again for blessing us financially, blessing us with the ability to help those in need in the church and kingdom of God. And we pray for continued wisdom in the church, Lord, and how how to best uh, use the funds and uh, invest in them, Lord, as we have, in many ways, a crazy economy and market. In your name alone we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are in Zechariah 14. Yes, we are finishing the book. There's a lot in this book. <clears throat> Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 to 21. Let us listen attentively to the Word of God. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of the Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of the Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day... Holiness to the Lord shall be engraved in the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Let us pray. With this closing... Image of prophecy, God, of the future. May we be encouraged to know that, yes, there is a final judgment, but there is also a final blessing. We have a description partly of that blessing here, God. And may it be an encouragement for us that you are with us and that you will purify us unto holiness, as is your name. and your glorious name we pray, amen. In the prior sermons, we learned about God's final judgment. We saw that it begins now and culminates in the return of Christ who will judge the living and the dead. 
So I saw it as an overlap of a multiple events from here on out until the return of Christ. And although a fearsome thought, this final judgment is a good thing. It means God's justice will not hold back forever. It means that the martyred saints will be vindicated. It means the unrepentant, debauched, and heinous, wickedly, wicked sinners will be publicly declared guilty and even given their just rewards. For us in particular, it means that we shall see him, for we shall be like him in holiness and righteousness forevermore, which is what we read here in these closing verses in particular. In 1 John 3, 2, we read, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And so with that understanding, we come to this text, we see the glories of heaven. We see that we shall be holy as our Lord and Savior is holy because we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is and all our sins shall be utterly eradicated and purified. The first point here, overlapping with the prior section, although to some extent also going into the new section because it actually has a little hope in here. Verses 16 to 19, we read about the time to repent. The time to repent. See, that's where the hope is. In this text, we finished the prior section where all, all these nations across the world comes after the church, symbolizes Jerusalem of the Old Testament language, and tries to take her out, destroy her. But they're judged and wiped out. And it shall come to pass, we read in verse 16, that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the Lord of hosts and to keep the feast of the tabernacles. They have an opportunity. If they were not wiped out, if they did not participate in trying to destroy the church, God is giving them an opportunity, we read here in this text, to worship him, to come to Jerusalem, to come to the Lord of hosts, the Lord of all might and power, the king of the universe, and to keep his festivals, in particular the Feast of Tabernacles. That's, a, that's good news. They can repent. They don't have to go down their path of wickedness as pagan nations. So there is a time to repent. That's what we see in this imagery here. And that's more evidence to me that this is not speaking of one single event, but is combining a bunch of events into one picture, a two-dimensional picture. Or uh, another imagery is a telescoping view of history. The best way to understand it, as I've said before, is it's an encompassing of the entirety of the future from that time forward to include the centuries up through Christ, beyond that to our days and to the final day of Jesus Christ and his second coming. It is like an overlay of many truths of history like a flat two-dimensional picture that takes on new significance if you were able to walk into the picture and see the valleys and the things behind the tree and behind the mountains. It has more depth, more things are going on. That is what I believe is occurring here in this text as it describes a final blessing of nations and people alongside others who are not blessed but rather cursed with a plague and no longer any more rain and droughts. That's not a picture of heaven, is it? Is there cursing in heaven? Are there droughts in heaven? Are there plagues in heaven? But you say, perhaps it means only the second coming. Well, again, there's no time to repent of the second coming. 
You have this great judgment, this great battle in the prior verses, right? They're going around Jerusalem. Here, verse 18, verse 16, it says, well, there are those who didn't go there. There's a remnant who didn't apparently go up and attack God and get cursed. And they can go to the Lord. They come up, it says, and they go up to Jerusalem, uh, to the Lord, and worship him. But among them, some of them don't. And if they don't, they'll be cursed. That's a weird, you don't get that from anywhere else of the more clear passages, for example, of Christ's second coming. He comes, there's a resurrection, that's it. So that's why I think a lot of things are being compressed here, flattened out into a picture, and there's a lot more depth to it. And <clears throat> this evidence here we see in 16 and 17 and elsewhere of a mixture of the saved and unsaved occurring at the same time, having opportunities to repent or to follow the Lord or to be cursed. And so I see these verses on repentance and blessings covering both the judgments and blessings of this life and ultimately the second coming and the great white throne of Jesus Christ upon all the nations. So uh, that's the long and short of why I take this text this way. Uh, again, I'm not going to be dogmatic in the sense of what's your problem, why you're a post mill, why do you have a different interpretation here. Uh, better men, more mature men than myself, have come up with different conclusions in this text, but that's how I see it. And so, we have then some good news here with some of the curses. In verse 16, those who are left, which come against Jerusalem, that remain that didn't go into Jerusalem, shall go up from year to year to worship the king. Nations, the goyim, there are Gentiles who will be saved. That's what he's saying there. He's telling the Old Testament Jews, who just thought, you know, if they were confused, they should have known better, as we know in the New Testament, Christ explains to them. But they're thinking, wow, this is amazing. They're going to they're gonna be saved. They're going to come up to us. The nations will become Jewish, perhaps, they're thinking here. Because it says they're going to where? Jerusalem. But the point, of course, from our perspective, it's, it's the Gentile nations being converted. We're part of this prophecy, brothers and sisters. We've been called out from all the various pagan nations in our history to follow our Lord and Savior, to join the church, and to submit to our Lord God Almighty. So, the Egyptians and anyone else coming can come and come to the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, why does he say keep the Feast of the Tabernacles? Well, as we know, that the Old Testament imagery is used to describe a New Testament reality. They could not imagine the world in which we find ourselves, that there is no temple. Remember in Jeremiah 3.16 and thereabouts, it says there will come a time when no longer people say, where's the temple, where's the temple? Why? Because the temple's not there anymore. That's the point. And we are in that time. And so we see over and over again in Zechariah, Zechariah quoted several times in the New Testament, saying it's being fulfilled during the time of Christ, it's being fulfilled during the time of the apostles. And yet it talks about the Feast of Tabernacles. Clearly, then, the Feast of Tabernacles is not presented to us as though we're going back to the Old Testament ways again in the future, but rather as a metaphorical or symbolic way of describing something else, describing being part of the New Testament era and the New Testament church, for example. The Feast of Tabernacles, to use and to unpack the meaning from the Old Testament, what's the significance of that feast? It can be described in two different ways. To celebrate the deliverance from Egypt, when they were in the desert and they made booths and resided in the booths, 
To celebrate the end of a successful harvest is what happened when they came into the promised land and they enacted uh, the Feast of Tabernacles and overlapped in the fall. Early fall in the, in the, end, of the end of the summer and the harvest time when it was successful. Praising and blessing the Lord, not only for deliverance, but also for providing for the nation. Included in that ceremony by the New Testament era was the drawing of water from uh, perhaps a well, symbolizing God's provisions for his people during this time, because obviously water is very precious in that kind of environment and world, uh, which Christ grabbed onto that imagery in John chapter 7, where it's described that Christ comes to Jerusalem during the Feast of the Tabernacles, or Feast of the Booths. And in verse 37 we read, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so we see the Feast of Tabernacles being picked up by Jesus in his language when they would draw the water up to symbolize God's provision, not only for the harvest, but of course what the harvest needs is always water, and that's how you get the plants and food. Christ says, I'm that water. I'm the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. It points to me, is the point there. And so we see a connection then here in Zechariah, Verse 17, it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem, on them there will be no what? Rain. What's rain? Water from heaven. You will not have waters of abundance, as Christ declared, flowing out of them. But rather they will be cursed. You either have Christ and the blessings therein, or you're under a curse. And so... Uh, Christ, in fact, is quoting there in John 7.37, apparently a combination of Isaiah 44 and Zechariah, um, it must be Ezekiel, excuse me, Ezekiel 36.25. You probably have it, uh, those in your study Bible there. And explains, for example, that the living waters is what? Well, Christ himself explains it in the next verse. The living waters is Jesus Christ, excuse me, is the Holy Spirit. But he spoke concerning, John writes in verse 39 of chapter 7, concerning the Spirit. When Christ says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. When you read here of the rain coming upon the people of God, it is the Holy Spirit upon those who submit, upon those who are being born again. And those who do not come to Jerusalem, they are cursed, they have no rain, they have no Holy Spirit. The curses, verses 17 and 19, where he warns the nations, sure, you didn't go out to Jerusalem, sure, you didn't try to circle and destroy her and ruin her, but if you don't come up to Jerusalem and submit to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords across this earth, you will be cursed and punished. It's not enough not to attack the church. It's not enough to be neutral towards the church. You must submit to Jesus Christ and come to Jerusalem. Come to the church of the Lord and Savior. Now, as we saw, part of the curse is no rain. And no rain, of course, in that kind of a semi-arid land means you're going to starve and die. (laughs) 
going to die of dehydration or something. But of course, the imagery, I think, goes further with Christ, who on the day, on, on the day of the Feast of Tabernacles spoke of waters coming forth. And John says he speaks of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that they are being, that they are rejecting and therefore are being cursed themselves. They do not worship the king and keep the Feast of Tabernacles, a feast of deliverance, rejoicing that God has saved them from their sins, a feast of celebration that God has provided and given them provisions, not only for their body, but ultimately of their soul. Whatever way you want to look at that feast, that's what it means to participate in it. Not in the actual event as though we have to go back and slaughter animals and go in the booths and do it for seven days and then have the eighth day jubilee or whatever else like that. But rather, in the New Testament era, it is fulfilled in being in the church, being born again, and pointing to Jesus Christ and celebrating on the Lord's Day in particular. In other words, the imagery here of the curse is that they are not saved they are not submitting to the king. It's the king. The king of what? The whole earth. When he's saying, if you don't come to me, Egypt, if you don't come to me, Rome, if you don't come to me, England, if you don't come to me, America, you are cursed. You're supposed to come to me because I am not just the king of Israel. I'm the king of the earth. That's the imagery here. Why else would you come up and submit to him if he wasn't king over the entire earth? He's, he's king over Egypt is what he's saying here. And if not... That is, if you don't submit to me, I'm going to punish you because I am the king, I'm the judge, and I'm going to exercise justice upon you. But I'm not, you know, you're not Egyptian, you're Jewish. No, God is not Jewish. God is the king of the universe, the king of the entire earth. So the, the background of this image, the, the assumption here to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, of all might and power, is to worship he who rules the entire earth. The nations are supposed to submit and bow down to him. Or they will be cursed if they reject God's rule. So that's a time to repent with, of course, more of an accent upon the curse there and the judgment if you don't repent, which is needed often. People are very hardened hearts and they need to wake up. And often you see through the Bible, of course, and Jesus himself and others, they tell you the bad stuff. They warn you, this is, this is bad. But the, the hope is still there, right? Because they could. They can repent. They can go up to Jerusalem. They can worship the Lord. They haven't been destroyed. This is a good thing. It's the time of the Gentiles up until the time of Christ comes. And a time of rejoicing when Christ does indeed return, verses 20 to 21. In that day, Holiness to the Lord shall be engraved in the bells of the horses. What in the world is that all about? I remember reading this as a kid. I was a young dispensationalist. I'm expecting the Jewish nation state to be reconstituted again, to have a temple created again, to have actual animal sacrifices reenacted all over again. That's what I was taught. The book of Hebrews apparently meant nothing to me, <laughs> to that uh, approach to the Bible. Although I knew about it, it didn't. Two and two didn't equal four in my head. Obviously here in verse 20 and following, just by the word itself used two or three times, holiness to the Lord is the theme of these verses. Holiness to the Lord, the grand theme of the Bible. But, Pastor, you say the grand theme of the Bible is salvation. Actually, salvation is for God's glory. Respect to him, salvation is secondary. That is as a theme. The theme is actually God's goodness in saving us that we would be his and be holy like him. Be you holy as I am holy. Because you're not holy, you're sinners, God needs to save you. That's where the problem comes in. 
There was no sin, there'd just be holiness. You see, so that's the grand theme. Sin has marred that theme, at least from our perspective, and God uses it for his own glory, and he brings us back part of salvation. The fullness of salvation is that we will have utter holiness to God, and the sins will be eradicated in our lives. And in our environment, this is a picture of the environment being holy, is it not? I mean, even horses have holiness written on the little bells around their neck. Holiness, as we know, is God's moral purity. God's distinctiveness, uh, we would say ontologically, is part of that, I would argue, that he is different than us. He is the creator, we are the creation. But especially his moral attributes and the call of holiness in our own lives to be like him, to have no sin. And it's the goal of all Christians. Christianity is not simply not sinning or avoiding the unholy, but to rather be holy and to be righteous, be holy as I am holy. God repeats over and over again in so many ways and all the imagery of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. We are called to be holy, to be perfect and righteous in thought, word, and in deed, to be cleansed from sin, but more than that, to do and to be full of righteousness. That's why he pours the rain upon us. We have the what? Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. But the holiness here we have described before us in verses 20 and 21. I suppose you can call it a mundane holiness, or holiness upon the mundane. It's perhaps a better way of saying it. As you recall, in the Old Testament system, the temple, the priest, the altar, the pots and the utilities to slaughter the animal and to manipulate the blood, were all holy. They were special. They were set aside and couldn't be used for anything else. Remember the showbread? The showbread was holy. You weren't supposed to go up there and just eat it because you felt hungry. Only in special circumstances, as David did, when he was dying, he grabbed some food there. But that was the exception to prove the rule that God had set these things apart in a unique way. They were holy. That's what it means to be set aside for a special purpose. And so God used that Old Testament imagery there, all of that, to emphasize the moral perfection, the moral holiness of God, and how we are called to be set aside from sin, set aside from this world, set aside from the flesh and the evil desires therein, and be holy as God is holy. But now in the New Testament era, the temple is gone. There are no more priests. So where is this holiness? Where is this separation of things from sin? It's wherever God's people are. And it's always been that way. Even the most mundane, innocuous things, such as bells on a horse, are holy unto God. That's the imagery here, that the holiness is spread. Even the simple pots for eating and cleaning will be used for the holy task of a sacrifice. Everyone who sacrifices shall come, it says in verse 21, and take them, these common pots, these clay things you have at home, and cook in them. That's inconceivable in the Old Testament. How could you do that? Those weren't purified. Those aren't special temple holy items that you only use for the sacrifice. That's a wash pot that you're using over there. That's your cooking ware. What are you doing bringing that to the temple? What kind of a Jew are you? Can you imagine reading this and saying, what in the world's going on here? What it's saying is, everything in life is now holy. Not just the temple. Not just the temple utensils, but the things you have in your life. And the pots that you have in your life are holy. Not holy as in magical, of course, but holy as in set aside for God's 
glory. So that even the special act of sacrificing can be done with the most mundane pots, as I read there. Therefore, we recall in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, Paul writes, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, take a pot and eat out of it. Do all to the glory of God. That's holiness. Now, it was there again in the Old Testament, and God used the temple system to teach him that lesson. And so he takes, he takes that picture and that language of the Old Testament and now says it's everywhere. It's always been that way. And basically he's saying the temple's gone. It's no longer, no longer significant. In fact, there may even be more of a hint of that when he talks about everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. The word there, cook, is used in Exodus 29, 21 when it speaks of the priests. And you shall take the uh, ram of consecration and boil it or cook its flesh in the holy place. Words used in that context of the sacrifice is a word and an action used for priests, probably intimating we're all priests before God in the New Testament era. Either way, the point is, all that a Christian touches is supposed to be for God's glory. It is holy and set aside that way. Not holy and magical, not holy and weird, as some of us grew up in uh, fundamental circles and they kind of emphasize unintentionally at times, kind of distress weird just to be weird. That's not the point. It's moral holiness ultimately. What's the purpose of why you have entertainment? What's the purpose of why you have that car? What's the purpose of why you have that clothing or why you do what you do? You do it because God has given you directions in life to be holy unto the Lord, to use these means and causes occasions to fulfill the commandments of God, to get to work, to relax, because God tells you to relax. You're following God's will. That's the point. That's holiness. It's a thorough holiness. So thorough, as, I, as we see here, pots and little bells on horses. Who cares about a horse? Who cares about a bell on a horse? It's holy unto God. And so is the merchant, or more negatively here. The word merchant, or Canaanite, um, the word can actually be translated uh, merchant. Interestingly enough. So it probably refers to especially dishonest merchants. And perhaps an allusion to Zechariah 11.5 where we read, whose owners, that is the leaders of Israel, slaughter them, the sheep of God, and feel no guilt. Those who sell them, sell the sheep of God, and say, blessed be the Lord, for I am rich. And their shepherds do not pity them. They treat the sheep like merchandise. And they themselves are like Canaanites or dishonest merchants, using and abusing God's people, the shepherds or the pastors of the flock of Jesus Christ. And in the future, we read in this time of beauty, beautiful holiness everywhere, there shall no longer be such wicked leaders, shepherds, and merchants in God's kingdom. Holiness will be everywhere. False shepherds will be gone. And everything would be perfect and holy. That's clearly a picture of heaven. So we've moved from the future to the distant future to after the coming of Christ to a beautiful time when there is no more sin described negatively. There is no longer a Canaanite, a dishonest merchant in the house of God using and abusing God's people. And in fact, everything is holy, even the most mundane thing on earth, the rocks you stand on. It's a beautiful picture. Sin is gone and moral perfection is everywhere. Revelation 21-27 is what comes to mind, at least for me. 
we read, but there shall be no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. No Canaanites, only holiness to the Lord forever and evermore. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. We thank you for this beautiful picture, God, and that we long for such holiness, and we struggle, and we are frustrated at times, God, for we see our lack of holiness, and we long, God, for your return. Help us, Lord, to continue on to fulfill this prophecy by your strength and power, Lord, to live a life of holiness, to take the things that you've given us, the books, the shoes, the water container, and to use it unto your glory, to be holy in thought, word, and deed. Help us, we pray, Holy Spirit, to continue to reign upon us. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us stand and sing hymn 151, 151. bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.